Most people find their ideal in this man, Jesus. <clears throat> Most people find their ideal in Jesus. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the florist, he's the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the physician, He's the great physician. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the hungry, he's the bread of life. To the thirsty, he's the water of life. To the lost and looking and lonely, he's the savior of the world. Jesus is God in human flesh. If you want to know what God is really like, look at Jesus. Let me turn that around. Jesus is not like God. God is like Jesus. You want to know what God feels about things? What does Jesus feel about things? You want to know what God's attitude is to people who are having problems and troubles? What was Jesus' attitude to it? All the fullness of God dwells in him fully. It pleases God, the Scripture says, that he will dwell fully in his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the totality of God. That's why we are emphasizing Jesus these last few Sundays, as we always do, really. We really don't have any other message but this man. We're concentrating upon it. Last week I talked about Jesus. In the four Gospels, you read his name over 500 times. In the entire New Testament, you read his name 905 times. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I know. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. The perish of 10,000. A lot of people get off track because they begin somewhere else trying to define God than with Jesus. George Buttrick was a marvelous preacher and teacher and pastor. He was chaplain at Harvard for many years, many years ago. And a student one day said to him, I don't believe in God. <clears throat> I don't believe in God. And Dr. Buttrick said, well, come in and sit down. Let's talk about it. He said, you know, uh, I probably don't believe in that kind of God either. Tell me what kind of God you're talking about. I have read Clarence, people who are professed to be, are called to be, designated as atheists. I've read the biography of Clarence Darrow, supposed to be, a, be an atheist. Wrote a marvelous book entitled Attorney for the Damned. With a great title, Well, The Life of Jesus. Attorney for the Damned. I don't believe Clarence Darrow was an atheist. I just believe he got the wrong idea of God along the way. As I read him, I hear him 
saying things about God and feeling things about God that if he knew Jesus, he wouldn't feel. I read the works of Emerson. I read the works of William Cowper Brand, the editor of the Iconoclast, shot down in a, by a pistol on the streets of Waco because of some of the things he was saying about churches and some of the things he was saying about churches on the outside, some of us are saying about it on the inside. We need to be more like Jesus. He was really opposed to writing about an iconoclastic attitude toward false ideas about God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And for a few moments this morning, let me put the, put the uh, microscope upon him, the magnifying glass upon him. You know, if you're looking at a beautiful painting, and you take a magnifying glass, and you look at one part of it, to see how the artist did it to get more of the detail. If that magnifying glass on that part of it, on the edges of that magnifying glass, everything else on the, on the circumference, on the periphery of that, looks blurred. That's why we want to focus on Jesus. We so often and too often in theology and often in church and teaching and preaching, get focused on something else and Jesus gets blurred in the process. So we need to focus on him. Martin Luther said, flee the hidden God and run to Jesus. Flee the hidden God, the God that is not totally revealed in the Old Testament. God is being progressively revealed not because of God's reticence, but because of man's incapacity to understand the nature of God. So you do not get the full revelation of God until you get to the New Testament and to the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Martin Luther also said, the Bible is read forward, but it's understood backward. You'll not understand the Old Testament adequately unless you begin with Jesus. You'll not understand the epistles and the remainder of the New Testament properly until you understand Jesus. This is why I urged you last week to spend at least 50% of your time reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the heart of the story. That's the heart of God. Jesus. What kind of man was he? We all have our mental pictures of him, and that's proper. There's no physical description given of Jesus in the New Testament, and I believe it's providential that we have no physical description. I believe the silences of the Bible are as inspired as the words of the Bible. Some things that God doesn't want us to know. He wants us with our own minds and thoughts to fill in some of the blanks. Every person sees Jesus through the lens of their own experience. I visited a Christian mission school in Oklahoma many years ago to speak there, and an Indian had painted a picture, his interpretation of Da Vinci's The Last Supper. And all of the disciples and Jesus were what? That's right. They were Indians. I preached in East Africa, in Kenya, and Tanzania, and there, art about Jesus. They picture him as what? As black. Everyone sees him. He is the universal Savior. The universality of his message and of his love means that he is a, he is a man for all persons and all seasons. What kind of man was he? Well, through the lens of my own experience, I see him as a real man. I see him as a very physical man. I see him as a very energetic man. I see him as a person who had something about his personality that just attracted people to him. 
And I don't believe it was just his physical strength, though I believe he had that. He cleansed the temple, as you know, with those muscles rippling with the sweat on his muscles when he was throwing the money changers out of the temple. He worked as a carpenter for most of the 30, 33 years of his life, outdoors in the middle of that hot sun, walked everywhere he went and overrode anywhere in his life except the last week, and he had to borrow a donkey to ride then. He was an outdoorsman, man's man. You'll never convince me that a drinking, cursing sailor by the name of Simon Peter would have followed some little namby-pamby, apologetic, milk-toast, strange for spine kind of pusillanimous non-entity. <laughs> I believe there was something manly about him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. I believe he could walk further and work longer than any man that ever lived. I, that's my perception of it. I also believe he was a likable man. Uh, people liked him. Now the religious leaders had trouble with him. They even had a kind of love-hate relationship with him at first. They just couldn't turn him loose. And they kept coming back and coming back and coming back. Uh, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. He kept upsetting their apple carts and he kept kicking their sacred cows. He kept trying to get them to see the truth behind all of the tradition that they had built up and gotten in the way of a relationship to God. But the, the Bible says that common people heard him gladly. What does that mean? That means folks who've got common problems and know it and willing to admit it. People who fear. People who have failures in one way or another in their life. People who've got hurt or hate. Common folks. The problem's common to all of us. They hurt him gladly. Why? Because he gave them hope. He gave them assurance that life could be better and could be changed. He never put down anybody. Likeable man. Children liked him, and that's probably one of the best compliments he could ever be paid. Children crowding around Jesus with their ringing laughter. Children are the best judges of character in the world. They can spot a phony quicker than anybody else. And that's because they've not yet learned how to be phony. They're just so patent and open and natural. Children like Jesus. They kept crowding around him. Men invited Jesus to have dinner in their homes many times. And most of the invitations came from the non-church-going crowd, the non-religious crowd. And even when it came from the religious crowd, they were getting him there to try to trick him, try to put him on the spot. But Jesus never turned down an invitation to a meal. Doesn't that make Baptists feel better about all the eating that we do? Jesus never turned down an invitation to a meal. He always went wherever invited, and he always had a good time. He had a delightful time. No one ever felt the presence of Jesus to be a cloud upon the company. No one ever laughed any less because Jesus was there. Nobody ever had any less fun because Jesus was there. Jesus did not come as the world's great wet blanket. He didn't come to frost the earth and cut the flowers and kill the song and turn out the light and drape life in black. He said, I'm come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. He liked to go to parties. In fact, his first miracle was at the celebration of a party, not at a cemetery.
They'd run out of refreshments at Cana of Galilee, and there were no convenience stores open at that time of the night. And so Jesus turned the water to wine and saved the day for an embarrassed host. He had a good time. I don't know why some Christians just, it just, they just get the idea somehow. It's just tragic the way they do. It's hurtful to them and to people around them and to the cause of Christ. That some people get the idea that for an individual to be a good Christian, they've got to be personally obnoxious. <laughs> they just got to be negative about everything. I know some people like that. They were just born in the objective case and they've lived there all their lives. They find something wrong with everything. Heard about two women who went to hear a great violinist in concert, and everybody was thrilled, standing ovations and all, and two women left. And one lady said, oh, isn't that the most magnificent, inspirational music you've ever heard in your life? The other woman said, I didn't like it. She said, what do you mean you didn't like it? She said, I'm, I didn't like the way he blew his nose after the second number. There's some people who go through life hearing nothing but blowing noses. Remind me of General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He said, the more I'm with some Christians, the better I like sinners. <laughs> you like because you know some of the same folks I do. <laughs> Jesus came to set the world to singing when he came, as the song says. And the song is growing sweeter, praise his name. So take up the glad refrain, the king of earth shall reign, for Jesus set the world to singing when he came. I believe Jesus laughed. I believe he had a smile on his face. I believe he was a hugger. You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and 826 times you will read the phrase, Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. If I were to start every sermon with that sentence, I would have to preach 16 and a half years to cover all of the separate rejoices and be glad that you find in the Bible. Jesus came to set the world a singing. Jesus came to bring joy. The king of joy. What a man. He's a happy man. He was a marvelous teacher. Penetrating. I mean, little children read his stories and are get understanding out of them. You can read the same story for 50 years as some of us have done, and you're constantly seeing something new in there, not because the story is changing, but because we are, and we're understanding more about God in the process, and understanding more about ourselves as we understand more about life. These stories of Jesus, these parables of Jesus are fathomless. A parable is a short story with a long meaning can reach into eternity. What a teaching. Read the teachings of Jesus. Let me point out two or three things about his teachings that apply to me as a Christian and to you as a Christian. Those, those teachings that he directed particularly toward his disciples. He had general teaching that he did in great crowds, but he had specific teaching that he did to his disciples. Now, why was he doing that? I think this is very important for you and for me to understand. There were times when he taught his disciples because those disciples were to be models of what the church was to be eventually. The early disciples were to be in Jesus' plan modeling the church. He was endeavoring to inculcate values and ideas and principles 
into this inner group so that they would be able, after he had ascended to the Father, they would be able to go into all of the world and preach that and perpetuate that, not only in their preaching but in their living, in such a way that little cells would be created just like that first group in, in, that, be, that began following Jesus. That little cell group became a church, became a church in Antioch and in, and in Ephesus and in Rome and in Athens and in Corinth and in San Antonio. And what Jesus was doing in dealing with his disciples was showing how the church was to be through the centuries. They were to model us. Okay, now listen to some of the things Jesus said. Jesus said, well, well, let me back up and say it this way. Jesus did not condemn obvious badness as much as he did obvious goodness. You read it. Jesus did not condemn obvious badness. He didn't approve of it. He came to change it and redeem it. But Jesus did not condemn obvious badness as much as he did obvious goodness. This artificial piosity. Goody goody. Bone. Toothache. Hypocrite. The word. Play actor. Root word. Well, as Isaiah prophesied to you hypocrites, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is from far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments and precepts of men. Who shapes our theology? That's why we read, need to read the New Testament. We need to let Jesus shape our theology, not let our culture shape our theology, not let the predominant thoughts of the day shape our theology, even when those thoughts may be predominant in the minds of a majority of Christians. Three other quick things that are very important. I hope you'll turn them over and over in your mind. But Jesus was teaching those early disciples and consequently teaching us who claim to be his followers. The ninth chapter of Luke, John said, the Apostle John, beloved Apostle, and he was about 16, 17 years old, he and his brother James, when they started following Jesus. And Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder because they were so impetuous and so energetic. And you can catch that here in some of the things that John and James are saying. Here, John says, uh, 49th verse of the ninth chapter of Luke, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. Jesus said to him, and I believe he looked at him with those loving eyes, but stern face, and said, Do not hinder him, for he that is not against us is for us. Jesus is saying to his disciples here a profound and powerful lesson that needs to be replicated in our lives and in our church. Jesus is saying to him, don't limit me. Don't you draw the parameters of what's acceptable. That's my business. I visited, as some of you have, Westminster Abbey 
and near the entrance to Westminster Abbey, the grave of David Livingston. And on that grave, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. It is proper that they too should come. Somebody on the other side of the mountain serving God in a different way, different place, different language, different order of worship, different kind of service. You leave them alone. You pray for them. Don't hinder them. That's my business. You tend to your business and do it right, but don't limit me because I am the universal Savior. I've come to save the whole world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in my sight, and they're all going to be a part of my kingdom. From the east and the west and the north and the south, they shall come and sit down in the kingdom of God. Don't limit me. We go on to another dramatic event immediately following this. And it came about from the days of approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent his messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now, you need to know, if you don't already, the Samaritans were detested by the Jews and vice versa. Not by Jesus, but by the Jews. The Jews would not even walk through Samaria. They called the Samaritans half-breed dogs because they had intermarried with their conquerors many years earlier. The Samaritans equally detested the Jews. And here was a Jew going through Samaria. Now, Jesus, as I spoke a couple, three weeks ago on the Samaritan woman, the woman who had been married five times and was now living with a man whom uh, she was not married to, and Jesus changed her whole life. And she went into town, told everybody in town about Jesus. They all came out in the whole town, asked Jesus to stay for a couple of days, and everybody in town became a follower of Jesus. But here's another Samaritan village that hadn't gotten that word. And Jesus sent couple of his disciples on head said, go on into town and get us some reservations, get us a place to stay. And they found out that Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem. They said, no vacancy. You're not allowed here. Well, what did that do to the disciples? Well, it still has a tendency to do that to us today. Somebody says, you stay out of here. We don't want your Jesus. You leave, you go somewhere else. We say, Lord, they're saying that about you, and I love you, therefore they're saying that about me, and I'm going to get them. I am going to get them. That's what James and John both wanted to do. Listen to this. They did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, they rejected us. Let's just drop the bomb on them. Burn them up. He turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. And he said, you don't know what you're saying. Your spirit is wrong. And they went to another village. Well, what about that village? Were they judged? Let me ask you a question. If you resist Jesus, you kick him out of your life and you can does God judge you? No. 
you judge yourself. The rejection of Jesus carries within it the seeds of its own judgment. If I refuse food and starve to death when it's there on the table in front of me, is it God's fault? Is it the chef's fault? No. I didn't take and eat. So Jesus didn't judge them. They'd already judged themselves. What could be worse than leaving Jesus out of your life? What could be worse? No forgiveness for sin, no peace, no hope, no joy. What could be worse? What I hear Jesus saying to these folks, don't use force. Don't use force. Jesus never forced anybody. He never coerced anyone. He came and invited the whole world. But he didn't coerce them. He didn't force them. He invited them. A Muslim was talking to a psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Coles, one of the people I enjoy reading, a remarkable man. This Muslim said to Dr. Coles, Allah would tell the world God is great, very great. He would make everyone believe in him. And if someone refused, he'd die. That's what would happen if Allah came here. That's not what happens when Jesus comes here. And don't tell me that what a person believes doesn't make a difference. It makes all the difference. Don't use force. I remember years ago, when we were having the two services, one was at 8 and the other was at 11, but before we went to the schedule we have now, I was leaving one morning about 7.30, and um neighbor moved away now many, many years ago. He was out in the yard picking up his paper, and, and I went by, and I slowed down, rolled down the window, and said good morning to him. He said, Buckner, where in the world are you going so early in the morning? I said, I'm going to church. we got services at 8 o'clock. Oh, he said, that's right, this is Sunday. And I said, yeah, it, it's Sunday, and I'm going on down. We have an 8 o'clock service. He, uh, I said, I'll see you later. He said, get in hell, Buckner. <laughs> Wave at me. I'll wave back. Get in hell. Get in hell. I rolled along. I thought, man, they already have enough hell in their life. We all do. We don't need to come to church to hear more of that. We need to come here to find out that there's some heaven available. There's hope available. There's health available. Spiritual and mental. Don't use force. The most powerful force in the world is not force. The most powerful force in the world is love. Love. Don't use force. And then one more before I conclude. Jesus had fed the 5,000 on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And incidentally, the 
the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle Jesus performed that is recorded by all four gospel writers, with the exception of the resurrection, which is, of course, the miracle par excellence. That's in a category all by itself. I'm talking about the earthly, physical ministry of Jesus leading up to the cross. The only miracle that every one of the gospel writers recorded is the feeding of the 5,000. And there's a reason for that, because here is a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus, a significant fulcrum, a real juncture. He fed the 5,000. And they began to say, hey, if this man can multiply five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 plus, that's just the men that counted. See 15,000 or more people there. He can do that. And we've already heard about the fact that he can heal the sick. And he can even raise the dead. Man, what a king he'll make. I mean, somebody gets wounded, he can heal them. If we run out of supplies, he can multiply loaves and fishes. Somebody gets killed, he can raise them to life. While we get him as our king, we can get rid of the Romans. We can set up an earthly kingdom. And that's exactly what they planned to do. And John tells us that. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him a king, withdrew himself to the mountain by himself alone. Now, you read the account in Matthew and Mark, and they tell us something more that before Jesus went to the mountain alone, he, and it's a very strong word, he constrained his disciples, his followers, his church, his us. We. He said, you get in the boat and cross the ocean, cross the sea. You get out of here. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. Leave. We're not going to be a party to this. And he went up into the mountain by himself alone. This is powerfully significant. Jesus is saying, don't use me for some personal desire. Don't use me as a means to some other end. I'm not a means to some other end. I am an end within myself. Don't you use me to just get materially wealthy. Don't use me to get things. Use me. It may come to you. Wealth may come to you. Don't use me as a means to some other end. If in serving me, you are blessed in such a way that you materially prosper, that the world comes to acclaim you, give me the glory for it and use it for my honor and glory. Don't use me for some political end. Don't use me to get rid of the Romans. You're more concerned about getting the Romans out of Israel 
then you are letting me get God into your heart. Don't you drag me in my holy name into the mud of partisan politics. My kingdom is not of this world. Do not use me. Worship me. Follow me. Obey me. For I have come to save you. If I save you politically a thousand times, if I save you physically a thousand times, if I save you financially a thousand times, and your soul will be lost, what does it profit a man? What does it profit a man if he gains everything he wants, even using the name of Jesus, but never knows him? What does it profit him to gain the whole world, but lose his own soul? Jesus is not a means to some other end. He is an end within himself. Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. Well, he did not come primarily to teach, and he did not come primarily to give us an example of what God is like in everyday concourse of events. He came to save us. What a Savior. No one else can save us. No one else can save us. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves by good works. You remember Daniel being called out to interpret the handwriting on the wall at Belshazzar's feast? And it said, God has said, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Picture a balance here, huge balance, big enough for me to stand on. And I stand here and the balance goes down to the floor. And over here, on the other side, there it is. I am weighed in the balance and found wanting. And so I say, all right, I am going to pile all of the sermons I have preached in nearly 50 years, pile all of them up here. All the hundreds of revival meetings I've conducted, I want to put them up here. All the books that I have read, all the visits I have made, all the people I've tried to talk to about Christ, all the works I've done in the life of the church, all of that, I want to put it over here, and that scale over here does not move one quarter of an inch. So I called my friend Billy Graham. I said, Billy, come get on this thing for me, will you? <laughs> and he gets on there, nothing happens. I don't know him, but I'd call him and ask him for help. Pope, would you come and get over here on the scale? I need you. I'm in serious trouble. Come over here. I'd get all the religious leaders that I know. I'd get everybody from every denomination I know. And I'd put them on there and I'd say, help me, because I'm in terrible strait. I have been weighed in the balances and I've been found wanting and the scale hadn't moved a bit. All those folks and all those works, all those deeds are still up there and the scales haven't moved. And they won't move. And all of them get off. There I am standing there flat-footed and without hope. Okay, Father, I'm going to put your son over here. Just him. I put my faith and trust in him and him alone. And if he can't save me, I can't save myself. If he can't forgive me, I can't forgive myself. 
If you can't help me, I can't help myself. And he puts one foot on that scale and second foot on that scale. And I tell you, it's like a rocket taking off to go into outer space. That scale goes up, and I go straight into the presence of the living God. Weighed in the balance and found saved by Jesus Christ and his grace. Friday afternoon, I talked to a sweet, beautiful, smart little nine-year-old girl named Jenna Andrews and her father, Dick, wonderful father, granddaughter of Dorothy Andrews, as many of you know. So Jenna said she wanted to talk to me about becoming a Christian. So we talked Friday afternoon. I don't know when I've talked to a sharper nine-year-old girl or nine-year-old infant. And I talked about what it means to be a Christian. What it means to trust the Lord. She says, I've done that. I'm doing it clearly and concisely, having been talked to by a loving father and a grandmother. She said, I have asked Jesus into my heart. She said, that's one. You know he's there forever, don't you? I said, yes. I said, now, Jenna, is there any, anything you want to ask me? And she said, so it was rightly. Yes, sir, there is. She said, she's a nine-year-old. She said, what is the difference between Jesus and God? I said, Jenna, that's a powerful question. And when you hear me tell this story, it's because of you that I've got a word to say to all the people. And thanks to you, I have a new insight myself into the nature and character of God. I said, Jenna, I said pretty much what I tried to say in this message. I said, Jenna, Jesus is God's first name. Jesus is all of God we will ever see. For God is spirit, and they that worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. The God we will see in eternity will be Jesus. But I said, Jesus is only one of the names for God. Same person, but just a different name. I said, John, what's your full name? He said, Jenna Lynn Andrews. I said, that's wonderful. You've got three names. I've got three names. My first name is Charles. No one ever calls me that because I never went by that. Except when I was in the Marine Corps, and they called me Charles. In fact, they called me a lot of things, but they called me Charles. <laughs> they called me Charles. Uh, Charles Singh. Uh, this is what they were talking about. Most of the time, people call me Buckner. Somebody calls, hey, Charles. Look. Hey, Buckner. Look. Mr. Fanning. Pastor Fanning. Dr. Fanning. I look, I've got three names. Charles, Buckner, Sandy. They all describe the same person. I'd never thought of this analogy until I was talking to Jenna. And I said, Jenna, you realize God has three names? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. One God and Father, 
of a sinner. Trust him. Accept him. Let him take his stand on the scales of your life. You've been thinking about it, somebody, for a long time. You'll never be in an atmosphere of more congeniality, more prayerfulness, more affirmation than you will here in this place. Maybe to come from some other church somewhere, you want to be a part of this fellowship, this little cell group here that's trying to be in our day what Jesus' disciples were in his day and trying to learn from him and from them what we ought to be what we ought to think, how we ought to act, what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. So you'd do us good to come. You'd help us, and we'd like to help you. And together we'd help one another be more like Christ. But that's the desire of us all. So I'll be right here to greet you and to welcome you.